Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all of our Just the News podcasts. You can find them at justthenews.com or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And a reminder that it's time to pre-order my new book that's coming out November 24th. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Order Slanted for yourself or somebody you care about. Makes a great holiday gift. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into what we know about the immunity question after coronavirus and a check on the FBI still withholding documents in the botched Trump-Russia probe. I shared this story and it almost crashed the Scoremaster website. The average person has 97 points. That's right, 97 points. They can quickly add to their credit score, but they have no idea how to get there. Scoremaster credit scientists discovered an algorithm that super boosts credit scores. Not a few points, but 97 points fast. Imagine 97 points on top of your current credit score. If you're refinancing your home, buying a car, or applying for credit. So you have okay credit and you're buying a car. If you do, go to Scoremaster first and boost your score. The average 61 points in 20 days or less. You could save nine grand on your car loan. And if you raise your credit just the average number before applying for a home loan, you could save almost 100 grand over the life of your loan. Now that's a real savings. Scoremaster puts you in in control of your finances. So enroll in minutes and see how many plus points you can add to your credit score at scoremaster.com slash just news. That's scoremaster.com slash just news. Go there now. This is a great deal. Today we are going to talk about coronavirus immunity, something that scientists believe happens after people have a coronavirus infection, whether they get sick with it, or whether they stay asymptomatic and don't have any symptoms. There hasn't been a lot of reporting about this, but when I searched, I found a lot of scientific articles that are advancing the knowledge on this front. And I've said since almost the beginning that it seems to me the more helpful test to conduct instead of just random coronavirus tests on as many people as possible, which has been the push for many months, would be to conduct and dissect the immunity question to have people tested for antibodies to see if they've had a coronavirus infection and to get to the bottom of how long the presumed immunity lasts if immunity is conferred like with most other viruses. This is really important. And I ran this theory or this idea by some scientists who are working on coronavirus individually back in late spring, and they agreed too that the most helpful thing to us as a country would be to know how many people and who have had and cleared a coronavirus infection and theoretically then have immunity for some period of time. So some of President Trump's enemies have been calling him a super spreader since he was diagnosed with coronavirus last week, and they've almost gleefully been recounting the expanding list of positive test results among other Republicans in high circles at the White House and federal agencies, recently at the Pentagon. But maybe they haven't fully considered or grappled with one effect of all of this, and that is that if the current scientific thought holds true, if all the people we're talking about who have been infected fully recover, they could be largely invincible to coronavirus in the future, at least for some time. I remember when Dr. Anthony Fauci 
of the White House Task Force on Coronavirus and the National Institutes of Health. He first publicly raised the immunity possibility in an interview last March. And I'll give you the reference to that so you can look it up yourself. But he said he's willing to bet anything, that was his quote, that people who recover from the virus are, quote, really protected from reinfection. He said, if this virus acts like every other virus that we know, once you get infected, get better, clear the virus, then you'll have immunity that will protect you against reinfection. You can find references to that interview by searching like I did. I just searched Fauci and like every other virus. And that interview came up. It was with The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. The interview you can find on YouTube under the title, Dr. Fauci Answers Trevor's Questions About Coronavirus. Dr. Fauci Answers Trevor's Questions About Coronavirus. There are also many write-ups of it. There's one in Business Insider from last March, and it's titled, Fauci Says He's Willing to Bet Anything that people who recover from the new coronavirus are really protected from reinfection. This seems super important. Although there are many unknowns, all these months later, science seems to be pointing in that direction. The New York Times recently reported that scientists are now starting to see encouraging signs of strong lasting immunity. This is the New York Times. Even in people who developed only mild symptoms of COVID-19, a flurry of new studies suggests disease-fighting antibodies, as well as immune cells called B cells and T cells that are capable of recognizing the virus, appear to persist months after infections have resolved, an encouraging echo of the body's enduring response to other viruses, says the Times article. You can find that article by Catherine Wu, dated August 16th, and the title of it is Scientists See Signs of Lasting Immunity to COVID-19 even after mild infections. Scientists see signs of lasting immunity to COVID-19. Now, I have anecdotally had friends and other people say they know of or have heard of people who've gotten two coronavirus infections. It would still be pretty rare, but I'm not sure those cases are fully documented because reinfection so far is so rare that when it happens, it's been written up by medical journals, at least when they've confirmed it. For example, it was in late August that scientists reported what they called the first confirmed case of a COVID-19 reinfection. You can read more about this in an August 28th article online by a group called Stat News, and the title of their article is, Scientists are reporting several cases of COVID-19 reinfection, but the implications are complicated. Scientists are reporting several cases of COVID-19 reinfection. I found this, though, just by searching for coronavirus reinfection. But the 33-year-old man in Hong Kong, who was what they call the first confirmed case of a COVID-19 reinfection, he only had a mild infection the first time, according to the reports. And he didn't even know he'd gotten reinfected months later because he reported no symptoms at all. How did he find out? Well, he happened to have to get a test because of travel he did in Europe. And that's when they saw that he had been reinfected. A few other reinfections have been documented, but even with the occasional outlier, epidemiologists like Michael Mina at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health emphasize that millions and millions of people have contracted coronavirus. What's important when you're looking at the population is what happens to the vast majority. And so far, 
scientists say the vast majority seem to be largely protected from a repeat infection. There are big implications of this for us as a nation. More than 7.7 million people in the U.S. at the time I'm recording this podcast have been diagnosed with COVID-19. And if scientists are correct, you can add to that the many, many more who have mild or no symptoms and haven't been diagnosed but have had coronavirus. In fact, some studies say most people who get infected with coronavirus will have no symptoms or go undiagnosed. So if you do the math, it implies easily 5% of our population could already largely be immune. I got the 5% from saying our population is about 328 million. There are 7.7 million diagnosed cases, more than 7.7 million more undiagnosed cases, if scientists are correct. So you're easily getting at 5% of the population that would have some level of immunity, according to scientists. Now, one big key question, of course, is how long might the immunity last? And nobody knows that yet because, of course, this has only been around since maybe fall or late fall a year ago, scientists now think. But here's what got me thinking about all of this. If President Trump fully recovers from his illness, and we hope he does, of course, his future coronavirus risk profile changes, at least on paper. There's every reason to believe or to theorize that he will then be at lower risk for reinfection, and surely that will factor into how he conducts the nation's business if he wins re-election. So that got me thinking about Joe Biden. Remaining coronavirus-free right now for him becomes sort of a double-edged sword because he is an older man at higher risk of potential complications, so he is likely to continue to take all reasonable precautions to avoid any unnecessary exposure where he might come down with the illness. If he wins the presidency, it implies he may have to stay close to home more and do a great deal of business from the protection of the White House. We're waiting, of course, for a vaccine, but remember, even if and when a vaccine hits the market, there will remain some concern, especially for people who are at high risk in the near term because no vaccine is 100% effective. The one that ends up being marketed could be, according to one scientist, as little as 50% effective. So it doesn't necessarily mean there are no worries for people, especially those at high risk. So whichever way the election turns out, it's getting hard to deny that President Trump and today's other so-called super spreaders could actually become tomorrow's formidable force of supermen and superwomen in terms of immunity in the uncertain age of coronavirus. If you want to read more about this and get links to some of the studies and articles that I've talked about, you can see my article in The Hill. And I titled it Trump from Super Spreader to Superman, question mark. From Super Spreader to Superman at The Hill. Back after a short break to talk about federal agencies that are still apparently blocking the release of documents now going on almost four years from the federal government's botched Trump-Russia probe. We're back. I am going to be spending more time going through documents that are coming out from the intelligence community, the list of documents still being withheld from Congress and members of the public and journalists in the Trump-Russia probe, 
but I'm going to focus today on specific document requests made by some top Senate Republicans that are still outstanding, which imply the FBI under Director Christopher Wray continues to refuse to cooperate for whatever reason with document requests and subpoenas from Congress. Normally, when there is a federal agency and the president is in the same party as the requesting members of Congress, they don't have so much trouble getting documents for their investigations. But in this case, it's been hard, no matter who's been in charge of the Department of Justice and the FBI, for members of Congress and investigators to get at these documents, even those that are unclassified and even those that are undeniably public in nature, that we actually own because they were generated on the public dime by public officials about public business. Maybe people don't understand that when we ask to see these documents, we're not asking for a favor. Congress isn't asking for something special, particularly when the documents aren't even classified. We are simply asking to see the material that we own, generated by the people who work for us. A lot of times they don't see it that way. But these top Senate Republicans who are still having trouble prying information from the FBI are the head of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, Ron Johnson. He's a Republican from Wisconsin. And the head of the Senate Finance Committee, Charles Grassley of Iowa, Republican. And their latest letter that I know about was issued Friday, October 2nd to FBI Director Christopher Wray. And this letter outlines their long-standing document requests that continue to go unfulfilled, including for some alarming material related to an intelligence report you may have now heard about that was generated during the 2016 campaign in July. And this report indicated that the Hillary Clinton campaign was planning to stir up a scandal about her rival, Donald Trump, by linking him to Russia. I'm going to read a quote from this letter that was sent on Friday to the FBI by the senators. They say, On April 16th, we requested all intelligence records, foreign or domestic, received or reviewed by the Crossfire Hurricane team, as well as all FBI records about those intelligence products. In response, the FBI directed us to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, but has not produced any other records responsive to that request. Crossfire Hurricane, as a reminder, is the name given to the Trump-Russia probe. And as an aside, John Solomon was the first person I remember reporting that name long, long time ago, when all of this sounded to many people just like a conspiracy theory. And I certainly didn't have information confirming that the FBI was indeed, or the intelligence community, spying on the Trump campaign. Long way since then, Special Counsel Robert Mueller and others have ultimately concluded there was no evidence that Trump, his campaign, or in fact any Americans colluded with Russia after all those years of former intelligence officials like Brennan and Clapper and Comey insisting on television that there was hard evidence and that all of it was true. Come to find out, it looks like they were part of the conspiracy to interfere with the election and then the presidency, according to the evidence that's been obtained. And a reminder, even the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA Court, and others have concluded not only were there improper wiretaps of a Trump associate, Carter Page, wiretaps that went on for a year and continued to be approved even after Trump became president, but also documents have been destroyed or come up suspiciously missing that could help 
shed new light on who was behind this investigation and some of the misconduct. Also, an FBI lawyer, a former FBI lawyer, has been charged with doctoring a document, actually changing an email to submit to the FISA court to get a wiretap, falsifying it by giving false information to the court to justify the wiretap. He's actually been charged with a fairly low-level single crime. I don't know if that indicates he's cooperating and turning evidence against others because there's certainly far more they could have charged him with at the Department of Justice but have not, at least at this point. And really few, if anybody, held accountable. I mean, you may recall that the inspector general referred charges against former FBI Director Comey to the Department of Justice for taking classified material away from the government building into his house and not telling the truth about it. And it was anti-Trump material, and some material he had ended up, of course, leaked to the media. But the Department of Justice declined to bring charges, saying that they didn't think there was any intent or ill intent on Comey's part. Remember, this is the new standard used in cases where they seem to not want to charge a government official. They say that they didn't mean to. That happened when Comey looked at the evidence against Hillary Clinton, although she had used improperly and illegally a server to handle classified public information. She had used a private server, but Comey determined that she didn't mean to do anything wrong. And there was even a congresswoman recently who was found to have used campaign funds improperly, but the House Ethics Committee, when they made their finding against this Democrat, they said she could just pay back the money because she didn't mean to do anything wrong. And I sure hope if I ever get in trouble for something, I can just tell them I didn't mean any any harm or I didn't mean anything wrong and I'll get off too. Anyway, um, back to the letter from the senators to Ray, the FBI director. It continues by saying, in a September 29th letter, Director of National Intelligence Ratcliffe, that's John Ratcliffe, identified a different intelligence report from late July 2016 relating to candidate Hillary Clinton approving a campaign plan to stir up a scandal against candidate Donald Trump by tying him to Russian President Putin and the Russians' hack of the DNC, which ultimately resulted in a September 7, 2016 investigation referral from the intelligence community to the FBI. Breaking that down, they're basically saying what John Solomon has reported, that there's now evidence in documents we have that the Hillary Clinton campaign back in 2016 did allegedly approve a plan to create this Russia scandal against Donald Trump, as did ensue, with no evidence in the end. So it sort of closes the loop and answers the final question, at least to me when I'm looking at this document. And of course, these members of Congress who are looking into it because the Department of Justice has yet to do much of anything we know of about it. This congressional committee and these lead Republicans are trying to get their own information to move along the investigation, but having trouble. They also point out, the senators, to Ray, that an April 2020 letter that they wrote, as well as a subpoena they issued, required the FBI to turn over, quote, all information and records demonstrating what, if anything, the FBI did with these and other intelligence reporting received or made available to the FBI's crossfire hurricane team. They want to look at these senators and their staff, what the crossfire hurricane team saw, what they did, what actions they took, and they're having trouble getting these basic public documents. 
The senators say they've also repeatedly requested text messages of various individuals involved in this botched probe, which is under investigation by U.S. Attorney John Durham, but no word on that. That's been going on a long, long time. And you know that some text messages have conveniently disappeared with phones from the Mueller team of FBI agents being wiped by accident or by passwords that were typed in too many times, and so the phone was erased, and I guess there were no appropriate backups as required by public records laws. But in the end of the surviving text messages, the senators say they only received a few dozen in response to their requests, and yet they turn on the news and sometimes hear about other text messages that are made public but have not been turned over properly to the committee who asked for them. Then this letter sent Friday to the FBI also says the FBI did make a set of text messages available, text messages that belong to the controversial ex-FBI official Andrew McCabe, did make the set of messages available to members of Congress and their staff, but only in what they call a reading room. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon that, as a reporter, used to kind of bug me because when members of Congress, and this happened under the Obama administration, still happening under the Trump administration, maybe it happened under Bush, but more so and more often now, when federal agencies really do not want to turn over embarrassing material, even when it's unclassified, and even though members of Congress, by the way, are often allowed to see classified material because they have the proper clearances on certain committees, when these federal agencies are pressured to turn over information they really don't want to turn over, they will make copies of the material available in what they call a reading room. How does that work? Well, they tell members of Congress, you have a certain set of hours, let's say between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., where you can come and look at the material that you want to see, but you can't make copies of it. You can't keep it with you for review. A lot of times they won't even let them make notes. Sometimes they let them make handwritten notes. Sometimes they don't. And there are monitors from the federal agencies watching. So these federal agencies will know who saw what, what they found interesting, what they uncovered in this group of documentation being provided in the reading room. Now, I always argue when I have members of Congress tell me, well, we were only allowed to see this stuff in a reading room. And I say, well, that's not compliant with your subpoena. And if they're public records, that's also not compliant with public records law. Why do you accept the reading rooms? But they end up saying that the federal agencies have gotten to be so obstructionist that that's the best they can do sometimes. They feel like if they keep pressing the point, they won't get them at all. So they take the option to see them in these so-called reading rooms. Then this letter that the senators wrote to FBI Director Ray on Friday said that the public interest in these records that they've been trying to get is significant and have remained hidden for too long. And they demanded that the outstanding records be turned over by Tuesday, October 6th. And I just checked at the time that I'm recording this podcast, the material has not been produced by the FBI. So obstruction continues under the officials appointed and hired under President Trump at the intelligence agencies, members of Congress, and even the president who would like to see these documents are not able to get their hands on them in many cases. John Solomon here at Just the News is, I find, one of if the best sources, if not the best source, on all of this information. He puts it together like nobody else has been able to do. So stay posted on the latest on all of this at justthenews.com. <laughs> 
I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Share it with your friends, leave a good review and check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Pre-order Slanted, my new book. It's subtitled How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I like to call it The Death of the News as We Once Knew It. Is it murder or suicide? That's my own personal subtitle for Slanted. If you'd like this for yourself or as a holiday gift for someone who cares, you can pre-order it today anywhere. This is the Black Friday special for the holiday season. Just for my listeners, the Clean Phone, the top brand in UV sanitizing, is now offering their top-rated, top-selling, best-reviewed wand product at 50% off and free two-day shipping. That's a great deal. The Clean Phone Wand is a handheld UV sanitizer that helps you eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and kill viruses in seconds on virtually any surface. It uses the same proven sanitizing technology employed by hospitals. Who wouldn't want that in your home? You can use it on packages, groceries, keyboards, tablets, money. Take it with you everywhere at 50% off and free two-day shipping. For a limited time, it's the perfect gift for anyone who needs it. It's super portable and with days of battery life, you can take it anywhere and make sure your environment is clean and safe. COVID cases are on the rise, so get the Clean Phone Wand at 50% off right now, and they'll take 60% off a second wand. That's a great holiday gift for your family and your friends. So go to justthenewsshop.com, that's justthenewsshop.com, and get your Clean Phone Wand right now. This is an early Black Friday special, so don't miss out. Go to justthenewsshop.com right now.